Now, uh, the title of our message this morning is Savior of the World, Savior of the World. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is not just Messiah to Israel. He is indeed the Savior of the world. If you have God's Word, if you'll please take it and meet me in John chapter 4. Meet me in John chapter 4, and we are going to pick up starting in verse 27. We'll tackle the rest of chapter 4 today, 27 Uh, or not the rest of chapter 4, but up to uh, verse 42. So that's verses 27 to 42. And we have three points to outline our message. Three points to outline our message. Uh, I had to keep them simple uh, because I preached in uh, Cantonese this morning. So when they translated, I want to make sure it's simple. So it's simply the messenger, the mission, and the Messiah. The messenger, the mission, and the Messiah. I'm going to go ahead and advance this slide now. So point number one is the messenger, the messenger. Now, before we read the text, last week we left off at verse 26, where Jesus declares to the Samaritan woman that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. And so in today's passage, the disciples come back, and they are shocked. Now, they're not shocked that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman in the sense of knowing anything about her background. They're not shocked because they weren't there for the conversation. They may or may not know about her background or her personal life. They are shocked by the mere fact that Jesus is talking to a woman. And so to understand this more now, I want you to dive into this context, right? Last week we said Jesus is crossing over ethnic and cultural barriers, and this was one of the barriers. So now look with me at verses 27 and 29. Verses 27 to 29. John records this. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said out loud, what do you seek to the woman? Or why are you talking with her to Jesus? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come and see, come and behold, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and the Samaritans, they were coming to him. So the first thing I want you to notice is that verse 27 begins with this simple word, just then, just then. And this brings you into the idea of God's sovereign timing. There is no missed opportunity with the sovereign plan of God. Just then, his disciples came back. And what that tells us is that Jesus was able to finish his conversation with the woman. Remember last week, Jesus was really going deep with her. He was answering her questions a little bit where she tried to redirect the message. But he kept going after her heart. He kept revealing to her that she had been searching for living water in different places. Basically, she was searching for her soul to be satisfied, digging wells in all the wrong areas where she would not find living water. And Jesus reveals to her that only Christ, only Jesus would satisfy her soul, that he has living water that no one can give her. And so imagine, though, if the disciples happened to get back early. I mean, they wouldn't have known. Traffic's lighter that day, and and they come back, and they interrupt his presentation or his conversation. And so Jesus isn't able to get deep into her heart. Well, 
God knows his timeline. So the disciples come right on time. Imagine if the disciples had come way later. So Jesus finishes his conversation with the woman. She leaves to go witness about Jesus, and they come back. And they don't get to witness two things. One, they come back right on time, and they get to witness, one, that he declares that he's the Christ to the Samaritan woman. And two, Jesus wanted them to see that he's breaking the barrier and talking to this woman. He wanted the disciples to see this reality that Jesus is breaking down cultural constructs. So nothing that Jesus does is by accident. Now here's where I want you to understand this woman's position once again and try to relate to her. You know, sometimes when we minister to people, we, we try to share the gospel and we wonder, what if I don't know what to say? What if I don't get the right opportunity? What if I don't get to finish my presentation? What if someone interrupts the conversation? When it comes to Jesus, we have to remember that we are messengers sent on his timeline. If someone interrupts you when you're trying to share the gospel, that's part of God's plan. If, if you're praying about the perfect door to open for you to share with your family member and you don't get that door this Christmas at Christmas dinner, don't stress out. Don't try to force it. Pray in that moment. Trust God. All evangelism happens on his timeline. Sometimes we can force it. But this is Jesus' timeline. And she goes as a missionary. But I want you to understand where she's coming from. So she goes to town. And what does she say to the people? First, I want you just to infer and understand some cultural context of who she's talking to. She's probably not going into the Samaritan town to talk to all the women Everyone knew that she was an outcast, that she was morally sinful. She's probably declaring to the town, but especially to the men, the Samaritan men who would have authority, because they would have to affirm whether or not she's telling the truth. And she's probably trying to convince these men, along with other women, to come and see. I want you to understand her position. She knows her position. One, she's a woman in a patriarchal society, so she doesn't say to the people, and to the men, hey, look, I met the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. You got to come and see the Messiah. She doesn't say that. She follows the pattern of invitation. Come and see. Come and behold. She drops her jar, goes into town, and what's her testimony? Her testimony is not that she has a life achievement award, and that's what gives her the credibility to share. She knows she's a moral and social outcast. Her validity is not even that she's a man in that culture or a leader. Her validity is not that she went to seminary and has theological training. She has no credibility of her own. She does not have a righteous life. Her worth, her value, her credibility, she has none. All she has is Christ. You know that song, All I Have is Christ? All she has is Christ. She's saved. She will be saved when he goes to the cross. Not by her achievement, but by his life achievement. By his achievement. Her testimony is not, I am great. I figured it out. I knew the Bible and I met the man. No, her testimony is he revealed my sin. That tells you her power. Her power was not in a miracle. Ah, but it is in a miracle. You see, I want you to consider something. 
that she's telling these Samaritans and they come to Jesus. One, they're willing to come. Two, later you'll see that they're converted, right? Many Samaritans come to faith. You know, a lot of times, put yourself in her position in a few ways. When you're sharing the gospel with people or when you're trying to just have that evangelistic conversation, you're just trying to build that relationship, most of us, I mean, we're a Baptist church, we do believe in miracles, but most of us aren't going to say, hey, come, let me, sh- let me tell you why I'm a Christian. Let me show you this miracle. Come to my house and Jesus is going to do this miracle and then you'll know that God is real. No, no, no. Oftentimes we forget that the miracle is right here. The miracle is in us. What is her miracle? What does she share? What is her power? I think we forget sometimes because we forget about the brokenness of our position in life that our greatest testimony is not our knowledge, not our ability, not our achievement, not what we know. Our greatest weapon as messengers for the faith is our testimony. Now can you relate to her? She doesn't go with a miracle. She goes with a testimony. You and I go with a testimony of a miracle that happened in our lives. Basically, she's saying the Tahib, that's a Samaritan understanding of the Messiah as revealer and restorer, this man revealed all truth to me, revealed the truth about my life, revealed that I had sin, revealed that I was searching and digging for wells in all the wrong places. He revealed what I lacked, and he gave me living water, which restored me. And the people, for some reason, they were seeing it, and maybe they saw it in a miracle in her life. Why is this important? Because as soon as you start flipping forward in John, the Jews demand signs and they demand miracles. But the Samaritans, the dirty outsiders, the half-breeds, the Samaritans, don't demand a miracle. They just believe based on testimony because the woman's life was a miracle. What is our greatest weapon as messengers? It is a changed life. It is a changed life in Christ. Do we need to know the truth? Yes, we need to know the truth. Will Jesus teach the truth to the Samaritans? I believe he will. But her greatest testimony is he he revealed my sin, he restored my life, he can do the same for you. I found living water, and where's yours? Okay? She was broken, and Jesus restored her. But I want you to understand something else that she's tactfully witnessing for Jesus. You might say, well, I'm not the Samaritan. Remember last week we were talking about how a lot of times because we're not as morally, we're not moral outcasts. Most of you, you're not moral outcasts. So it's harder to connect with the Samaritan woman. But I want you to consider something. You go to your workplace, start talking about Jesus. Five, ten years from now, starting now even, if people know what you really believe, you'll be shameful. If they really, you know, she had five husbands. The fact that you think it's wrong that someone has five husbands, shameful. You're judgmental, you're a bigot, you're ancient. You believe that people should maintain their gender given at birth. Oh, what a shame. Get with the times. Why are you so hateful? Right? Think about it. Think about how the cultural context has changed. The, posi- the position of the messenger has not. We are always up against the grain. We're always need- we always need to be broken. Our power is never in worldliness 
or worldly achievement. Our power is always in, in begging that the Lord would speak through us and would open the opportunity. She understands her position. Like I mentioned, culturally, she's a woman. Her lifestyle, shameful. In Samaritan society even. So when she goes to these men, she says, come, tactfully. So once again, you're trying to share the gospel. We are in a time now where you most likely, if you're winsome and you want to win some to Christ, you might not go out there and say, hey, I have the truth and you don't. You're going to hell. We believe in those truth, truths. And if you can get them in, the, in, in these doors, let me say that to them, right? But I think when we're out there engaging, is it more understanding that the truth that you and I hold is not going to be acceptable in society. So instead, we are, we are winsomely trying to find ways to respectfully invite people. Hey, I know you're not religious. I know you don't pray much. But, you know, I was going through this situation. I didn't know what to do. And all I could do was pray and I found Christ. And Christ changed me, or, or, I, or my marriage was in shambles, and the only thing saved me, I know you won't believe this, but it's this man named Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, the Bible guy, Jesus. He's real, and he saved my marriage. It is our testimony. It is our changed life. That is what makes us messengers. That's point number one, messengers, the messenger. The Samaritan woman was a messenger. She's not that far off from you and me if we really look at what's happening in the text. Point number two is, little did she know she was a missionary. Point number two is the mission. The mission. The mission. We see this in verses 31 to 38. Before we read, the, read a portion of the text, there are three things I want you to pay attention to. First, just like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus' disciples, they are preoccupied with physical matters. So much so that Jesus urges them, open your eyes and see the spiritual work that's happening. The harvest is here. The gospel is meant for the Samaritan villagers too. Second thing, not only are they preoccupied with the physical, second is that Jesus is doing God's work and God's harvest has arrived. Jesus is doing the work of his Father. And thirdly, eternal life. The living water of eternal life in the Holy Spirit is being offered to the Samaritans and they're receiving it. And why that's important at this point in the narrative is that John 3.16 is being fulfilled. Yes, whoever believes that part, whoever, not just Jews, whoever believes will receive eternal life. That is being fulfilled as Samaritans, non or half-breed Jews or people who are hated by the Jews come to salvation in Israel's Messiah. Now look with me at verses 31 to 34 first. 31 and 34. John records, meanwhile, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Right? So in verses 31 to 34, we see that Jesus' disciples are momentarily stuck in the physical realm. And in verse 31, what they're doing is reasonable. This is good. They are concerned. 
about their rabbi. They're concerned about Jesus. So they say, Jesus, you must be exhausted. Have you had anything to eat? Because Jesus had sent them to town to get food, right? And so then they come back, and they're like, Jesus, you say you have food to eat. Who gave you this food? Hey, did you give him some food? I didn't give him food. We weren't here. Where did he get food from? Right? That's what they're asking. They're stuck on the physical realm. They're stuck on physical food. And his response is spiritual in nature. He says, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. In other words, he is more satisfied in this moment by doing the work given to him by his father. Right? That's what satisfies God. And what is that work in this context? His work is leading the Samaritan woman to salvation. I do believe she's converted. And then leading many Samaritans to believe in Jesus as Messiah. That's his work in this context. Now you jump down to verses 35 to 38. And I want you to notice that Jesus' work and God's harvest has arrived. Right? Look at verse 35 to 38. Jesus says, Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. You see this theme in John, behold, behold, look, look to Christ, look at his work. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruits for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, Jesus uses a common farming metaphor to describe the process of mission work. Jesus' disciples, they were familiar not just with fishing but with harvesting and so the harvest season was typically springtime that would logically make sense so around april so some commentators uh, believe that when jesus says there are yet four months then comes the harvest that that puts this conversation in the month of december but here's why that's a tricky inference to make is that if you just infer the context of last week's passage and you go to Jesus and the woman at the well, it seems like by 12 noon, it was really hot. It was really hot. And so if that's the case, we're not certain that this is supposed to be literal in the sense of December. And so it's more likely that Jesus is just simply using a common sense proverbial saying. And so when he says, the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps, Uh, we can't attribute that to any Old Testament passage or any scripture. Uh, It seems like this is a Jewish proverbial saying. That's what the scholars tell us. And that's most likely what's happening. And so this is pretty simple. Jesus is saying, typically, in the physical world, when you sow a seed, you have to wait. Four months is standard, a standard time for waiting. But in the spiritual realm, when you consider spiritual work, you are on God's timing, the Spirit's timing, sovereign timing. It's different. And so open your eyes and see. You don't need to work four months. I met this Samaritan woman, found her at the well. We talked. She believed. 
She went. She told. Now they come. You don't have to wait four months on Jesus' timeline. Sometimes you have to wait for decades for people to come to Christ. People that you've planted seeds in and someone else waters and, and then someone reaps the fruit. But in this case, the disciples are going to reap the fruits of Jesus' ministry. Right? And so, so that helps us understand where Jesus is going in teaching his disciples. And in verse 35, when he says, lift up your eyes and look, and it says the fields are white for harvest, some scholars say that the Samaritans were coming up this hill and they were all wearing white. Now, I can't confirm that, but so it's a literal illustration saying, look, look at all the Samaritans, look at them coming. It's symbolically like a harvest field, like, like the harvest is ready. They're all coming up and they're all coming to Jesus to learn about Jesus and then to believe in Jesus. And what we see very clearly, though, is that the harvest is meant to represent the gathering of converts. Jesus' work is to do the work of his Father. And he's gathering now people who would believe in him. Gathering fruit, verse 30, 36 says, for eternal life. The fruit, that's the people coming to Christ in this context, and they would receive eternal life life. Now, we've already explained eternal life in past weeks and the meaning of eternal life as a quality of life. But Jesus here, I want you to see that Jesus is gathering people, and there's people who do the work. He says, one sows, another reaps, in verse 37. And that helps you understand that in this context, at least, it's not the same person doing the work. So if you're a farmer, is there any farmers in here? Does anybody drive out here from Central California? Right? If, you're, if you own a farm, you, it, you're probably the same people who sow the seed. You're the same person who's going to do all the work, and then you're going to reap the harvest. Now, this is very different. Right? He's very clear. And his point is to his disciples. To his disciples, he wants them to say, you haven't done anything. You haven't, you're entering into this labor. Now, we know that in 1 Corinthians, it teaches us that some Christians, some of us at times will sow seeds, some of us will water, others will reap. That is true. But in this context, there's someone who does the work. Now, once again, those of you who are astute, you know where I'm going. You know where we're going. There's someone who is going to do the work, the labor that they're going to enter that nobody else can do. There's only one person who can do this labor. But right now, who we, we look at when he tells his disciples, others, others have labored. Who are the others? Is it the prophets? Some commentators say, well, Jesus is referring to the prophets who spoke about the coming of Christ. They did the work. Well, guess what? The Samaritans didn't believe in the prophets, right? The Samaritans, last week we explained, they only believed in the five books of Moses. And so their understanding of Messiah was the Tahib, uh, was this fulfillment of this new Moses from Deuteronomy 18. This new Moses would reveal truth, a new truth, and would restore the Samaritans as God's people, as part of God's people. And so I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about the prophets. Is he talking about John the Baptist? Is he talking about other people? I think 
if you look at the specific context who, context, who are the others who have labored? I think there's two. One, there's the woman, not the disciples. The disciples didn't go labor and bring the good news or the message of Christ to the Samaritan town. The woman did. The woman did. So that's one person. But the second is Christ. Not only did Christ meet the woman at the well and planted the seed in her as she went and shared, but Jesus says something to his disciples that they're not yet understanding. But soon they would understand. I am the living water. Whoever drinks of my well will never thirst again. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of my food, you shall be made whole. That's not what it says, but I I didn't memorize the verse. He's the bread of life. I have food to eat that you don't know about. I have food to eat that you don't know about. There's one, and that's the Messiah. That leads us to point number three. Jesus is going to accomplish a work a work. Now, he says to his disciples earlier, my food is to do the work of him who sent me to accomplish his will. And we know that ultimately he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about paying for our sins, being our substitute on the cross. But under point number three in verses 39 to 42, the Messiah, so we've seen the messenger, which is the woman, the mission, which is the harvest, And people gathering converts to Christ. And point number three, we see the Messiah. Under point number three, two things I want you to notice is first, the Samaritans trust in Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, without a miracle. So we see that in full display here. And that's in contrast to the Jews that you will see in the rest of John that demand signs and miracles. And Secondly, like we mentioned, the Samaritans come to faith through the testimony of the woman and most importantly, the words of Jesus, okay? So let me read you verses 39 to 41, uh, 42 now. John writes this, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, to dwell, to remain with them. And he stayed there only two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that it is indeed the Savior of the world. That you are indeed the Savior of the world. Now, the most important thing that you see from here is that they believe because of Jesus. Now, when it says, now, John is very thoughtful. You know that. He's theologically deep. He makes you think, but he repeats themes so you can see patterns. And so when John records that it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, that's not to downgrade or to discredit the woman's testimony. The woman's testimony was critical. God used the Samaritan's woman's testimony to bring the Samaritans to come and see Jesus. But the point of this is saying that the woman doesn't save. Now you understand our role. The woman does not save. We do not save people. We invite people to Jesus. Jesus saves people. So when the people encounter Jesus, they're going to receive the experience that the woman received. 
How was the woman saved? She encountered Jesus. How are you and I saved? We have a personal encounter with Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How are the people saved? It is not because of her word. It won't be because of your evangelism necessarily. It won't be because you said all the right things or you inserted yourself in the right conversation at the right moments or your sacrifice, which all of that is good. It will be because people meet Jesus. It's not because of her words. It's because of his words. And that's really clear, that they believe because of what he said to them. Now, what might he have said to them for two days? He might have, remember what Pastor Albert taught us during the senior pastor series? What's the pattern of Jesus in, outside of John? He probably told the Samaritans, hey, it's great that you guys believe in the Torah, but you need to believe in the rest of the Old Testament because I want to show you now where the Jewish scriptures spoke about me and how I fulfill the scriptures, that I am the Savior of the world. I'm not just the Savior for Israel. And he probably taught them the Abrahamic promise, that remember my promise to the Jews, to, to their forefather Abraham, that through Abraham would come not just blessing for Israel, but blessing for all the families of the earth. I am that promised seed. I am the Messiah. I am the greater son of David, parts of the Old Testament that the Samaritans didn't believe in. And so they, they confess he is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. That is a great confession. And notice that Jesus takes the same steps in his missionary endeavors that he instructs his disciples to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my messengers, my witnesses, from Judea to, talk to me, Samaria, some, someone said Chick-fil-A, I'm influence you guys too much. Yes, okay, stop by Chick-fil-A on your way to Samaria. Samaritan's Purse, drop off your thing there, right? So, Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, to us. You know, I'm looking around here, maybe there's one or two of you that might be half Jewish, but I would venture to say that most of us are not Jewish by blood. So we're Gentiles, which means this applies to us. We're just like the Samaritans. You know, the Jews, I don't know why they had forgotten because they knew the Abrahamic promise. But if you read through John and the Gospels, many of the Jews of Jesus' days, they were just anticipating a Messiah for Israel, not a Savior for the world. And Jesus comes to remind his disciples, he wants his disciples to see that, look, I'm here to save the Samaritans too. And so we are recipients of the same type of blessing, a blessing that overflows out of the child that was born the son of David, the one born in Bethlehem, the advent, the coming, the, the one who was born at Christmas. Yes, he is in every way Messiah to Israel. Yes, he is the Messiah to the Jews, but he's also the Messiah to Israel. And so I want you to take your Bibles, I have it up for you here too, and turn with me to John 17. I want you to see similar language. You'll see this in other places in John, but I want you to to go right before Jesus goes to the cross. In John 17, it's a famous passage on Jesus' high priestly prayer, and this is his conversation with the Father. 
Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. I have foods that you guys don't know about. My food is to do the work of my Father, the one who sent me, and to do his will and to what? Accomplish his work. Now, in this prayer, Jesus is praying for his 12 disciples, and he extends that prayer to anybody who would come to faith through the ministry of the disciples, and that would include us, all believers, all of his followers. Now, I want you to know what he says. I'm just going to read you verses 1 to 5. Jesus, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. So lift up your eyes and see. Now he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he says to his father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, that's the entire human race, to give eternal life, the same language, same themes, to all whom you've given him. So stop there. There are people, we don't know who is going to come to Jesus, but God does. And so Jesus knows who he's dying for. We don't know. But Jesus knows he's dying for people of every tongue, every tribe, every race, every age, throughout all of history. He's dying for a people because he's actually going to be their substitute, our substitute on the cross. He knows who he's dying to. So he has authority over the entire human race. But then there are people, including the 12 disciples, but all the people that would come to Christ who Jesus is going to die for, including these Samaritans here in our passage today who are going to come to him. So now go back to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. So there's a difference between all flesh and all you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, and here's where you see the same language, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Which is what? To minister to the woman, to save her, to save the Samaritans, to save the disciples, to save other Jews and Gentiles during Jesus' time, and then to go to the cross and to pay for the sins of everyone who would ever respond to the gospel and believe in him. Now, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is essentially saying, Father, this is my passion. I'm going to the cross You've given me people to die for, and I'm going to die for them. And after I die for them, I'm going to hand them back over to you. You wanted me to die for these people. You wanted me to pay for these people so that they could be your children, Father. But they're separated from you. There's barriers separating them from you. In fact, there's not only the barrier of sin, but sin is so convoluted that there's cultural, gender, and racial barriers. There's barriers that are separating the Jews from spreading the message of truth to the Samaritans. I came to destroy all those barriers, but the most important barrier that Jesus destroys is not cultural, it's the sin barrier. It's the fact that the people are saved because Jesus is there. You see the barrier between the Jews and Samaritans falling because Jesus is there dwelling with them. You see that the barrier is falling between the Samaritan woman, her sin, and the Father who loves her because Jesus is there. 
You begin to see that, that his own disciples begin to believe in him because the barrier of sin is about to fall. And Jesus knows this, and he's going to the cross to accomplish the work of dying for our sins to break down that barrier. And if Jesus has broken down that barrier for us, then we have a message. Sometimes we don't think we have a message. Now I want you to think again. Put yourself back into the, the position of the Samaritan woman. Who am I? I don't know. I don't have a seminary degree. You know, I don't, I still struggle with sin. Who am I to share the faith? Who am I to be used by God? Who are, missions, that's the Lottie Moon thing, right? We just give money. I mean, who am I to go and share with anybody about anything? Who was the Samaritan woman? What was her standing in society? What did she know? Who is she? She's nameless still. Nicodemus had a name. She's still nameless. Yet, God the Father chose to use her through Jesus Christ. You and me, it's the same. Our, we are messengers because the greatest message that we have is that Jesus revealed the sin in our hearts, broke down the barriers between us and God. And what's her most powerful testimony? A changed life. Your greatest weapon in witnessing is your life. Yes, you need to have the right message, but it is your changed life. And you need to consider that. The more and more as the gospel is not welcomed, yes, we still need to be bold, but as the gospel is not welcomed in our society, more and more, the strongest thing that people will see, the strongest witness will be the power of our lives. Lives that are empowered by the Spirit, lives where we are fulfilled because we have living water, where we have soul satisfaction and contentment because we have Christ. Lives where, unlike the rest of the world, we are not chasing for the things that enslave this world, but we have something. We have food that people don't know about. We have food, we have bread to eat that people don't know about and the posture of humility rc sprawl said we are just beggars telling other beggars where to get bread that's like the woman right all she is is she she doesn't have any righteousness all she's saying is that i'm a beggar needing bread and i'm i want to tell you come and see this man who is the bread of life i i, I don't have water this guy gave me living water i was searching so the big idea this morning is the messengers of God are sent on the barrier-breaking mission of God because the Messiah broke the barrier that separated the nations from God. The messengers of God are sent on the barrier-breaking mission of God because the Messiah broke the barrier that separated the nations of God. We can be messengers of reconciliation because we've been reconciled to God through the cross. We are messengers of God's grace because we've been shown grace. We can cross the boundaries of age, race, and culture because Christ crossed the boundaries of heaven, took on human flesh so that he could be our substitute on the cross. And we are sent then on a mission because we are products of God's mission. We are the fruits of Jesus' work. His finished work. He finished the work on the cross. And we embark upon the Great Commission because Jesus fulfilled his mission we can reap the joy of the harvest because the Messiah did the hardest labor. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. He labored so that we can have new birth. He labored so that we can be born again unto eternal life. I don't have this plan in my manuscript. I want you to take your Bibles 
and I'm going to end with this, I promise, and I'll have you, I'll have you in and out in five minutes from now, okay? Take your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're talking about atonement, we're talking about the work, we're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about how we see ourselves participating in the work of Christ. And I want you to look at verse 24, Colossians 1, 24. Paul, speaking of himself and his ministry to the church, Paul was one of the greatest missionaries. We would all agree. In Colossians 1.24, he says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, stop there. And he talks about then bringing the message to the Gentiles, right? That's the parallel. There's nothing lacking in Jesus' death on the cross. That's heresy. To say that there's anything lacking in Christ's afflictions. Meaning when Christ died, it was fully sufficient. It was complete. And then he says in his flesh, he's fulfilling the atonement. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that Jesus suffered on the cross, accomplishing the work of the Father to die for a people. And Jesus knows who he's died for. And the only thing that is lacking is bringing the message in person to the nations. There's nothing like, follow me, there's nothing lacking in Jesus on the cross. The only thing lacking is that going in person to bring the good news to the people that Jesus died for that he atoned for. And so that's what Paul means when he says, now I rejoice in his sufferings, in Paul's sufferings, and in his flesh, in his human work, he goes out to do his part in Jesus' work. You see that? Jesus does the work. We enter into his labor. We enter into his labor because he did the greatest work. He labored. Mothers, hear me on this. He labored on the cross so that we can have new birth. The one who was born a babe on Christmas, grew up, went to the cross. He labored so that you and I can have new birth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we look at this passage, and we know, Lord, that you accomplished the greatest labor of suffering, bearing our sin on the cross. And you sent us as your messengers to tell of your good news to the nations and to our neighbors and to our co-workers and our lost family members. But there would be, we know there wouldn't be any message without a mission, and there wouldn't be any mission without a Messiah. So, Father, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning who doesn't know you as Messiah, that you would save them. But for the rest of us, Lord, help us, especially this Christmas season, to enter into your labor. You finished the work on the cross. We bring the message of that finished work to the people that you died for. Help us to see ourselves as everyday messengers and missionaries. Help us to live for you this Advent. Help us to focus our hearts on the nations. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.